This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany. Well, I think I started when I was a teenager, maybe trying to, you know, write a diary and get all the angst out of my head. They were woeful poems at the start, so... When I started studying it in secondary school or reading it in secondary school, I really, it really resonated with me. Um, I, I felt kind of isolated when I was growing up, maybe because I lived in the countryside or I don't know. I lived a lot inside my own head, perhaps. But I think that the poetry, particularly of Patrick Kavanagh, really resonated with me and it made me kind of feel that I wasn't so alone in the way I thought, maybe. And then um, I entered a poetry slam all the way back, maybe 2004, 2005, just because I saw it advertised in the Galway Advertiser and I had a lot of poems under the bed. And I went to that first slam and after that then I just started to take it a little bit more seriously, maybe. I studied English and history in university, so I'm very, I've always been into reading. And poetry just felt like a natural progression. I had... Um, a son when I was quite young, my first son, Jack, and maybe it was easier to write poems than it was to sit down and consider anything bigger and longer, you know. And maybe Ireland at that time was a place, you know, before the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, even though we have a lot to do with that, and maybe before, you know, marriage equality and so on, even a decade ago, it was very, it, it felt so much more constrained and conservative and still very patriarchal. So my first foray into poetry was very political and my first dive into it was it was political and angsty poetry and yeah that's how it all started really. Oddly it was in the King's Head in Galway the King's Head pub and my friend Noelle came along to it and um, I was it was a poem about my grandfather Tommy Cunningham from Galway City from Merview and I think I was nervous because you're also you expose so much of yourself when you write these poems, I think. And I took my shoes off <laughs> when I used to perform at the start. I used to take my shoes off. I don't know why I felt maybe weirdly more grounded to the earth or something or that I would I feel quite clumsy as a person. So spatially. So I think maybe it just balanced me a little bit. I used to do that for some time, but I'm OK now. I leave my shoes on. <laughs> But I was nervous. Yeah, I was nervous. And this poetry slam is an odd thing. It originated in, I think, the Green Mill in Chicago. And the Irish style of it was a little different. I mean, it was really just people reading poems. But you you win a slam. It's, a, it's an odd competitive element to art, which I'm not really that excited about. But... Um, it was a way of, it was a public way of getting out and getting to something sociable and, and sharing my work and then everything evolved from there. Um, so yeah, I was nervous, but I won the first poetry slam I was in. So I think it gave me an appetite to continue on and I got a lot of decent feedback from the audience and I think that was helpful. I'm not sure, I think uh, it's, you know, we have a lot of anxiety as writers, so I'm not sure how I would have felt if <laughs> I was booed off stage. <laughs> But anyway, that was the beginning of poetry. And then I, I started to do, I, I mean, I would be equally as interested in the written word as in the oral tradition of poetry. But I think the oral tradition of poetry in Ireland is very important. So um, I'm quite proud of my past 
slam successes. It really elicits a very intense reaction if you tell someone you write poetry. I mean, I never claim to say I am a poet. I mean, it's a very lofty notion and I sort of kind of think it's very ascendancy or something. But in school, yeah, people say I don't do poetry. I don't get poetry. I don't like it. And yet when they reissued the Soundings book a couple of years ago, everybody went out to buy it and felt some sense of nostalgia about the book that they had studied in secondary school and the, the poets that they had studied. So I think it's a very unusual relationship people have with poetry. And like, I mean, if they'd reissued a biology book or a maths book, I don't really know what people have gone out and bought it quite so readily. But uh, I think that it can be destroyed. I'm an English teacher. I teach poetry. I have leave inserts. I teach in the university also. I teach poetry there too. Sometimes we have this expectation of ourselves that we have to understand everything or that we have to grapple with everything and we don't just relax and allow the language in or allow the sound in, that we have to contextualise things. Maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's market forces sometimes that make us feel that way. I think it's a, an influence from, you know, that we have to understand and know everything and we're in a very kind of tech age now where we can get instant information but... Not so much instant knowledge or not so much knowledge, not instant, but, you know, knowledge that's maybe deeper, has a more broader appeal. But I mean, the universality of poetry, the themes haven't changed over the centuries. Love, death, war, family, family feuds, relationships, nature, the transience of the world and the permanence of art and so on. So... Yeah, I, I don't know. I think we do destroy it a little bit for our students. I, I, I think everybody just needs to relax a little bit more and relax into it. Oh, well, I hope they think it's brilliant. No, they seem to really like it. And, you know, I think the value now with regards to the curriculum, you know, they do value, the examiners do value a personal response to the poems. And I really push this you know, I obviously teach the techniques and poetic techniques, but I would go into the background of the poet maybe more that, than when I was at school. I think it's important. I think you can't really fully separate the poet from the poem or the poet from the poetry like you can maybe with a work of fiction, you know. So, but, but they seem to react quite well to it. And I mean, it's the one class in the day where it's open a little bit more to interpretation and that they get a chance to voice their opinions and to try and talk. But school seems to knock that, I don't know, maybe that childish um, wonder of the way we look at the world out of, we seem to, by the time they come in at first year, they're very excited and balls of energy. And by the time they leave in, leave in search, I don't know, maybe it's just growing up and adolescence and outside influences as well. But I think sometimes the education system can really switches off rather than switching us on and maybe there's way too much emphasis put on rote learning instead of you know appreciation and understanding and critical thinking and empathy you know I think you can definitely help 
their skills and maybe you can teach form and you can teach past poets and you can definitely ignite an interest in the expressive word and what people can do with with language but I'm not entirely sure you can fully teach creativity um but you can definitely encourage it and you can definitely give it meaning so that it's seen as something incredibly useful I mean you know art is one of the most incredible things that we have as humans I suppose so I think that you can definitely help but you know people can be very naturally gifted and some kids and students I would see that they have an incredible way of looking at the world often quite differently but that also leaves them in that time of their life quite isolated and vulnerable also because they tend to live outside of the social norms a little I think many writers do I suppose it was the soundings book at the start. Um, I was I really liked the work of Dylan Thomas when I was younger because I thought it was something that ignited language for me. I wasn't always sure what he was talking about, but I thought his story also was quite interesting. Um, I loved Edna O'Brien as a writer when I was younger, a girl growing up in Ireland, I suppose we all did, and I appreciated Maeve Binchy. But with regards to poets, it was definitely Kavanaugh would have been my favourite. And I, I really liked Yeats. I liked anything that we, we got to study, I suppose. Um, I didn't grow up in a, an intensely bookish house with respect to poetry, so anything I read, I had to go and search for myself. But later then, when I went to university and started hanging out in the library and around bookshops and so on, I was very influenced by, um, say, Paula Meehan and especially Rita Ann Higgins. I mean, she's been one of the biggest influences in my writing life, actually, just that somebody's so close. You know, it's that kind of thing that they're teaching girls now. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And here was this woman living in Galway from working class area with the most wonderful way of writing about the people that she saw every day or the people that had lived around her and lived among her. And she really was writing, writing political poetry that was so brilliant and so sharp and acerbic and yeah so she would have definitely been a big influence but I mean I read all the time in books I like to live in books well the sad thing about now is that you have to read because you have to keep up with everything and you're reading everything and you're and you're comparing what you write to it and have my my appetite it probably has changed a little bit and sometimes I don't find reading as much fun because you know I've always a pile of books beside my bed I like history books um, I like biographies, I like poetry, I like to read the young poets that are coming through now, but it's to try and find time. You know, that can be hard. The essay has had a really big revival as well. I've been um, reading some of Ian Mullaney's work and Sinead Gleeson's brilliant Constellations. Uh, so I think that they're fantastic. They're like the sort of hybrid between, I don't know, storytelling and poetry and honesty and personal experience and they have this wonderful way of just writing about their lives, the banal and mundane and brilliance of them, but with, you know, just real beauty. So I think they're quite poetic. So I think they're, you know, wonderful. I and mean, they've quite inspired me. I don't think I'd ever have the 
bravery to write something quite as, I don't know, maybe revealing is the wrong word to use because I think they're actually excellent artists in their own right and writers, but maybe. But the essay has definitely um, had a huge revival here, which I think is good because I think we have a lot of the past that we need to maybe consider and a lot of issues in the in recent decades that I think are important to revisit. My style has changed insofar as I've, I'm trying to become more maybe inward and maybe more aesthetic and take my time and be a, bit, a little bit more mindful um, in what I write. I will probably always be political. I mean, all poetry and all art is political in some way, even when it's not political. But I think I just... I, oh, I was younger then, <laughs> more idealistic. Maybe now I just want to be a little bit more mindful. I was quite sick some years ago and when I went to the political poems at that time, they just more irked me and more enraged me and I think I, I go to poetry a little bit more at the moment for solace. And But, you know, I can I can be fired up fairly quickly. So <laughs> and, and I think even in my more pastoral, but that's a poor word to use, poetry, I think I'm still political. Um, I think I'll always have to be, I have a kind of an urge to be, I don't know, some sort of fire about it maybe. Like we've a lot done, a lot more to do and there is a, a sort of a, a false notion that the world moves itself forward in progressive lines, you know, and you know, we start today and we reach B and everyone is more enlightened, but that's certainly not the case. I don't think we're very cyclical humans and, you know, the world is in a, quite a state right now. If you look at America and Brexit and many, many more examples, even our own system of direct provision here, which is just the most appalling thing. So it's difficult to sit down and write a pastoral poem and not be brought into some political space. Um, you know, I, I was influenced by the Beats growing up as well. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I, I have an inclination to be political in my work. I just can't seem to escape it. I've quite a strong mother, so I think <laughs> she'd be disappointed if I did move away from it. teach so the noise in a school is pretty intense all the time I've children they're quite noisy well they're big now they're less noisy I find um I need a lot of silence and a lot of solitude I need a lot of time out if I spend an hour in the company of people I have to spend an hour alone I think I like being on my own uh so I come up here a lot on my own I come up here with my husband and my children as well but I particularly just like to come up here and spend time on my own and really try to not think but um the you know the poems come when you're walking or they come when you're you know just in nature I like it and I suppose the seasons come and go here too and and come back and there's some sort of reassurance in that isn't there I think woods are really peaceful I, I have always liked there's another woods close to us as well Castle Ellen um, I don't tend to go there as much. It's a lot smaller and there's Scotswood. So I suppose my house is between it. The land around Athenry is quite flat as well. So 
um, more woodland. But um, my grandmother was from a place called Woodlawn, so maybe I have some sort of a generational attachment to it. But I just think the sound in the woods is really peaceful and you can really think here and I find it's just really good for the soul. I will be slagged to the end of my days if I said we were special people. So I don't know, can we say, it? I, I, not necessarily, you know, does poetry do anything? Who knows? I don't, I don't think so. No, I don't think we're particularly special people in any way. Are we introverts? I, I suppose that's a very difficult question to ask again. Like, I mean, I could be just as inspired in a airport waiting area or in a pub or in school or in a hospital as I can be here but what I I like the sound of people also I do like overhearing conversations and I write a lot from that too but if I do spend a time in that space I have to take myself out of it again you know people would say I'm quite extroverted and quite outgoing but actually I've been trying to convince people for a long time now that I'm quite an introverted extrovert. <laughs> well, I don't think you can have it always. Um, I think we, we we do need a lot of time on our own to think over things. I think uh, writing can be a quite an anxious condition. You're concerned, you're saying too much, you're concerned you're not saying enough, you're concerned you're not saying it in the right way. You know, you've concerned someone else is going to say it better. That's probably the worst part about it. But, you know... I think that we have a tendency towards, yeah, introversion and to like liking solitude and liking being alone. I, I also feel as if I can't upset anybody when I'm on my own. So I, I, can't, I can't do anything to, you know, piss someone off when I'm alone. So <laughs> I think there's, there's great freedom in it. But I think mo many people feel that way, no? Um, I don't need to be among people all the time. I don't like it, actually. It kind of, it tires me, but I do like to, you know, I have friends, I can be sociable. I'm not Emily Dickinson, although they do say that Emily Dickinson, the vote was quite sociable too, and that that might be a, more of a stereotype of her. But also I think we can be quite, you know, sensory, um, take in a lot. I take in a lot visually and I, I take in a lot through hearing and I think sometimes over, I can feel kind of overstimulated. So I'll come here to bring myself down or I do like to do yoga as well and I do like to drink copious amounts of alcohol too if neither of those two things work. <laughs> do you know it was the loveliest break actually because these wonderful fictional characters um, it's quite a character-heavy novel for a poet, actually, because for, an for one who claims to be such an introverted poet. So there's a main narrator, Sinead, and she's in a hospital bed, and she she's, has a secret that she has kept from her family, her children and her husband, for um, eight months, and she ends up extremely ill in hospital. But she overhears the conversations of the other patients and we soon begin to realise that they're all quite connected in some way and she really needs them and we hear their backstories. It's like it's called As You Were and it's like Tales from a Hospital Bed, I guess, which is a weird way to tell a story, but it's quite cave-like in the fact that she's almost a prisoner to this space and she can't escape it, so she can't escape the noise. Um, which is sort of my idea of hell, but in the end, the noise becomes these people's reality and their lives and they become very honest with each other. So it was lovely because the characters that came through, came through, it's like a seance, but the characters that came to me while, when I started to write the novel, I had this 
compunction weirdly to just write Sinead's story as this first person narrator but then the characters were quite intrusive and brilliant and I was you know intrigued by what they wanted to say and what they had to say and they very much developed it took me a good few years it took me maybe three to four years to write it and it was a nice yeah it was a nice holiday from the poetry because you know you kind of get up you sit at your desk and you put one word in front of another and then you have a sentence and it's I didn't overthink it as much and I think because the characters are fictional there was such freedom for me to express things that I wanted to say that I didn't feel I could say in the in the poetic form because people always assume the I in poetry is yourself no matter who the speaker is there's an assumption that it's an experience and that it's coming from the author's experience it was nice freedom actually but you know it was also painful <laughs> at times but it's done now so it'll be published um, by Harville Secker uh, Vintage in June 2020 so that'll be exciting hopefully. Well the process has been over the last few months people ask me to write poems and I just have to sit down and do it <laughs> but ordinarily um, it would be getting myself away on a holiday somewhere taking some trains to places and then unpacking all of that when I come back and when I spend time on my own. I normally go on holidays with my husband and son, so um, they're there. I don't tend to write that much, but I tend to try and take in as much as I can. And like, I mean, the poem can be based in my own childhood, but it's just, I'll get some inspiration maybe when I take myself out of my routine. It can be very difficult when you're teaching. I mean, Stephen King said that no writer should be a teacher. And I kind of tend to agree with him in some ways because I think your energy is quite sapped by the time you get home in the evening and it's a different kind of a, you know, endeavour. But I need a bit of space for the poems to come. And, you know, you just wait. I just wait for them then to come along. I'll, I have lots of notebooks and I jot down ideas and some come to something and others are horrendous and they never work out. And Some work out really quickly and you have that sort of moment where you're sitting at the desk and you're bouncing off the chair and then others are a slog and they die and that might be the best <laughs> but I think uh, you know maybe my writing style has definitely changed over the years I think um, I force things less and I don't know maybe I'm just getting older and more wise or less wise I don't know which <laughs>
we're at the mausoleum now in Munavay Woods and I try to avoid history here even though I'm a history teacher but it's quite an imposing little kind of castle building and there's two cousins buried here Kathleen French and her cousin Rosamond and I think I've sort of written this poem I'd probably have to read it to remind myself of really my inclination when I wrote it Kathleen's father is also buried with her inside and Rosamond is buried outside, which I think there's been a lot written about this. But I just really kind of wrote a poem inspired by the spirits of maybe the women around here, but also the difference, I suppose, between maybe their cla the class of the French or the background. Um, Kathleen's mother was Russian and her father was, I suppose, what we term loosely as the ascendancy or Anglo-Irish, maybe or originally Norman, I think the French is. But... Um, I just like to kind of put myself into the poem as well as a girl that grew up very close to here. There's also um, this folklore myth that, you know, Athenry is very close to Monavay here and I live half, well, not halfway, closer to Athenry, but between Athenry and Monavay. That's where I grew up and I live there now. And there's this story that a giant threw a stone from Athenry to land in Monavay, but it landed on my road where I live. Uh, well, that's myth I'm sure other people say it landed on their road so I kind of wrote the poem also inspired by the permanence of a stone structure and the permanence of rock I suppose that goes back a little bit to Yeats's 19 Easter 1916 there's a verse in that about the permanence of of I suppose the rock the stones in the midst of all and I think very much with the mausoleum like I'm looking at it and I'm going god they're going to be remembered here forever you know even kids people picnic so there's picnic benches here so people picnic here and I've picnicked here with my kids and you know, it's a creepy kind of place, no? <laughs> I used to look in the keyhole as a child and I think it's quite creepy and I think, my God, they really did really want to be remembered here. I know after um, Rosamond died, they gave, the money was given from the estate to the people of Toome and in turn also Monavay, I think in the same hinterland. I might be incorrect in that, but I think I'm right. And, you know, that was a nice thing to do, I suppose, but... You know, you have to ask yourself the question, why were people poor for the century previous? You know. This is Elaine Feeney for Reverberations. Girls in the Woods. The road at Monavay ran the whole way to Dublin to bring bleached linens fresh from the green and ice from Russia shoveled to the dark caverns of these woods to fill crystal glasses of spirits drunk by lips with thick accents. Next came revolution. But the full never remember that revolution is always coming, coming. They have no need to worry about such things as hunger. One girl grew here, shook away her damp leaves, breathed in big belly breaths of petrichor. But now dead, she's unconvinced the rain here smells of anything. The girl she grew sprawled her mangled roots into the undergrowth. First, she pushed out branches, leaves, full fruits, a solid trunk that softened when she took in the rain. Creeping low into the ice house, she once stuck her pink tongue to a block of frozen water, winced. A sore mouth can only whisper. Uprooted, she would crawl, sprawl herself beneath the forest caves and stone crevices, eventually laying to sleep inside this tiny castle. In these woods, it is always autumn, and death is always coming, coming. The girl who grew here brought Italian marble to mark herself and granite from dynamite explosions. And to the other girl buried now outside this mausoleum, you are of the squirrels and hawks. 
I, I can only make promises to the trees. I will leave no trace, no marble tomb or cold stone. For when the giant hurled a rock from Athenry here, it missed its mark and landed in Bally David, settled down my road. And that rock taught me such permanence has an eternal obligation. So let me burn, burn, burn like a sweet hawthorn and scatter my ash cloud between a holly bush and a plastic bag that hangs from a branch beside a kissing couple in that space between howling spirits and the ordinary. A gentle breeze, a cow calfing, a child laughing. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany.